0: Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tinellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax. Ray Cairns is a Sydney-based author who shot to notoriety when her debut self-published novel, The Good Mother, was shortlisted in 2021 for the Ned Kelly Award in the Best Debut Crime Fiction category. Following this auspicious event, Ray was offered a two-book deal with HarperCollins Publishers and The Good Mother was revised and reissued, allowing even more readers to discover Ray's storytelling prowess with this gripping thriller. This month, Ray is celebrating the release of her second novel, Dying to Know. And I have to say, listeners, much like The Good Mother, this book was thrilling and heart-stopping in equal measures. From its opening pages, Ray sinks her storytelling hooks into us and doesn't ease up until the very end. With its intriguing premise, expertly researched details and propulsive action, I picked up this book on a Sunday afternoon and simply couldn't put it down again until I was done. For several hours, everything took a backseat to this incredible story of love, loyalty, corruption, betrayal and a sister's search for the truth. I absolutely love this book and couldn't wait to chat with Ray again. Welcome back to the podcast, Ray. Thank you so much for having me back, Claudine. I'm thrilled to be here. My absolute pleasure. And I wanted to say once more congratulations on another brilliant book. Thank you.
1: It's, so, um, it's lovely to have it out there and, and have people reading it
0: finally. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine. So, Ray, how did you find the experience of backing up a book you'd spent years writing with something you were under contract to write?
1: yeah that was a totally totally different experience I absolutely did get the dreaded book two wobbles it's just such a different experience your first one all your well for me I went into writing my first book I had this story that was just dying begging me to to come out and it poured out of me, but I didn't necessarily have the goal at that point, at the very beginning of that, of getting published. It was I just had a story I needed to tell. In fact, it started off I thought it was going to be a script, like a screenplay, and and then it was became it was a novel straight away. That was what poured out. So this time round, obviously, still a very creative experience, but I, I had I had all these things kind of the, the doubts and the critic in my head just at some point screaming at me <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing and the first time must have been a fluke and that was the biggest challenge other than the time constraint so yeah. first book I wrote in five years this I wrote a, in a year under contract but that trying to quiet that voice enough that I could get the story out particularly the first draft that was the trick for me. And I think I, have you know, joked with people about how I told the critic just to sit in the back seat and shut up and let me get this thing done. But it took and it took a lot of support from mentors and peers who just kept saying, this is normal. This is normal. Write it out. Write it out. Get those words down. And so when I did, it, it was a kind of a freeing process. And then I had something to work with, something to edit, something to it was also what came out was a clearer piece of work. I think I'd, I'd learnt so much doing The Good Mother and, I mean, there are a million drafts of that book out there and I, I really did keep on working at it for five years. And so this, what I'd learnt kind of came through in the first draft of this book but then so did the critique and the doubt and the oh my god I'm heading the wrong direction I don't know what I'm doing here and that so that was the battle of the second book.
0: I was thinking about our last chat after The Good Mother was published by Harper Collins and I remember you describing the premise of dying to know and and I thought back then that you have absolutely nailed the art of the hook. (laughs) Uh, i wondered if it was something that you're aware of when you're thinking about your next project or book idea something that has to have a strong hook
1: well i think for me it starts with a moral question so if you've got a question that can sound very simplistic but it actually becomes much more um, ambiguous and and hard to wrangle then you've got something to work with somewhere to go so we're dying to know it was you know how far would a, a mother go to protect her children and it sounds very simplistic at the beginning you know of course they'd do anything but then when you think about the intricacies of that you know well what if it comes down to saving one of them and and all that so it becomes a, would you harm somebody else and and so with this one it was is uncovering the truth always worth the price you and your loved ones might pay. Because we often strive to want to know the truth, but I don't know if we always... Not that it's not always good to know it, but that there are consequences to knowing the truth.
0: Framing your book as a moral dilemma, it's still it's still a terrific premise. Both of your books are just incredible. That's something that's talked about quite a, a fair bit in the industry, isn't it? I mean, having this strong premise. But I wondered, Ray, if you thought it was more... Is it more important for some genres compared to others? So for example, is it more important to have that strong premise or strong hook for crime writing compared with other genres? Oh, I don't know if
1: I feel qualified to answer that question. I definitely think it's important to have that hook that draws people into the story. For me, it's very focused on, like within my stories, it's an everyday person in an extraordinary circumstance. And I think that's part of of what draws people in because they can imagine themselves on the page I guess yeah look there are certain themes through humanity that we're all trying to deal with and all trying and I think that they come in all good books they are there so is that the hook I don't know we're dying to know I really wanted it to be a story about the power of belonging because I think that once you've kind of dealt with the other hierarchy of needs you know security and and food and shelter and then you move into this most humans want to belong somewhere and it, it's quite a driving force so it, whether that's your family or whether that's what drives you to join a uh, outlaw motorcycle gang or whether it, it drives you to have misguided loyalty to your co-workers. So yeah, that was really important to me to do that. And I think that that those kind of universal themes are in the best of books. And I suppose the hook is what you kind of hook people in <laughs> to 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 reading about that. I can't think of another way to put it. It's not that I start out and go I really need a hook, but I, I did start writing one book and and I realized that that wasn't there, and so I I've parked that for a while and, and went into a, a new one and mm. it was the right decision. So yeah, may, may, maybe it does need to be there, but I don't know across about the genres. Definitely. I think in crime. Yeah,
0: for sure. Now, Ray, I was honored to attend your book launch last week in Sydney, and I heard a little bit about your inspiration for dying to know, and it seems that it was inspired by a few different events. So I wondered, could you elaborate on that for listeners? The idea came when I
1: Listen to a young woman talk about how the impact of her brother going missing on her and her family and it upended every single aspect of her, her life and her world and it really got me thinking. I was intrigued with the idea of exploring the experience of the people left behind when there's a missing person as opposed to the missing person being the focus of the story, even though that does drive this story it's very much about what how the impact on the people left behind so i had that idea swirling in my head and then i am very much a what if person um i'm very i'm usually observing things around me i'm usually listening into conversations sorry and i'm always asking questions so you know i might see a suitcase in the corner i'm like well, what if that suitcase has the solution to every crime you know one crime committed in each city around the world or something you know just ridiculous ideas like that and so we were traveling to an event and we were behind a Camry and it has the old style boot and I just came to me was like what if someone's in that boot right now what if they're trying to get out can they get out can they get the hand out the light how does that work can you get the latch open you know and that just set me off on this trail of research about how you get out of it a boot, how you get trapped in a boot, that kind of thought process. And those two ideas came together. And then I had that moral question in my head. I wanted to explore about, you know, truth and and, and how important it is. And then my husband and I had started riding a motorbike. Well, he rides, I'm on the back because then I can switch my brain off. And we went to all these places and met all these people and the, the entire lifestyle really intrigued me and it opened up this whole other world to me. There are people from all walks of life that are in the, in the motorbike scene. And yet I also knew about the kind of the way the outlaw biker scene had had spilled onto the streets of Sydney from back in the 80s with the Milpera massacre through to the 2000s with the Sydney airport brawl. And so you kind of had all these different aspects of biking. So I, I threw myself into research, which I absolutely love, and read a ton of biographies from the gang's perspective, and from the police perspective, you know, people had been undercover in the bikey world and stuff. And then that wasn't quite enough. And so I talked my husband into accompanying me on trips to biker haunts and rest stops and cafes and the shops that they bought a lot of gear from and stuff. And we spent just a lot of time Hanging out around those areas, and essentially anyone that would give me the time of day, <laughs> I struck up a conversation with, and and tried to get a feel for why they loved the lifestyle, why they were interested, all sorts of things. And I was eavesdropping, and I was it was just, I was just absorbing this lifestyle. So I got to talk to people like us who are weekend bikers, who just you know like like the experience of riding a bike, through to people that are really in the lifestyle. You have all the gear, and it's it it's a big part of their life through of those that had dipped their toes in the the waters of outlaw motorcycle clubs and then I got really lucky and I got to talk to an ex rebels bikey gang member and that was invaluable it made him like this real human as opposed to the picture you have in your head of a, a outlaw bikey gang member you know he loves his mum desperately he and his wife and kids but he talked to me about why he'd got into the lifestyle in the first place, how he believed that society didn't you know, do anything for him and, and he wanted to live on the fringes and he th- thought he should be allowed to live there as long as it didn't impact anybody else through to what he thought about the strikeforce raptor and the police and and he talked to me about the the daily life of being a biker and it was just he became this real he was a real person. Not became he was a real person and mm. and it kind of yeah worked through any any prejudices or opinions I might have had about what a biker was. And I knew I wanted to thread that in the story. And then I also knew I needed to balance that out with talking to the police and so I talked to numerous police officers but in particular I went out to uh out west to a PCYC a police citizens youth club and I shadowed a youth police officer out there for a day and asked him a million and one questions very much in the same vein as I asked the bike what his opinions were on Strike Forks Raptor why he got into being a police officer why why a youth officer as opposed to murder squad or you know so it was um very much about learning about why he was in working as a youth officer at the PCYC, and knew. I also knew I wanted my. I wanted a police character, Jesse, and I wanted him to be like the policeman I had worked with when I ran the refuge in the inner west, and the police I'd met there were genuinely trying to do their job. the best of their ability they had good hearts they wanted to do their best for the kids that i was working with they made mistakes we all made mistakes they're human but i I just didn't want that brooding policeman or the um the alcoholic policeman i wanted that real real person that I, i had experienced in my work so that research kind of gave me Jesse. And then I read a ton of newspapers. It's important to me. Each day I read and 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 try to take in what, what are the current affairs at the moment. And it's important to me that they are in the pages of my novel. They're not there blatantly, but they are there. And they definitely informed this story. And kind of all these bits and pieces play around in my subconscious and I don't know what happens up there but they all come together then I sit down to write and I start at the beginning and I I write in chronological order and I discover the story at the same time and I absolutely love that part of the process because it's like I didn't know that was going to happen and then I'll um, you know editing process I'll go back and go did I plant enough information that that I'm not kind of revealing something at the end that I haven't got through there. And my subconscious will have planted bits and pieces. Sometimes I need to, you know, tease them out more. Yeah, so the research part of my novels, and it was the same with Good Mother uh, and, and with my next novel, uh, they're so important to me. I'm passionate about it. I love it. And it definitely helps me, yeah, get into the story. So even though Good Mother, I had been there and experienced it, I was able to do this that through research in this one.
0: I just love hearing about how inspiration and different events culminate into this incredibly cohesive and intriguing propulsive story as I've said before absolutely wonderful okay so we've talked about you know about the premise of the book and all the inspiring events but for the benefit of listeners who haven't had a chance to read it yet can you tell us more about the story
1: Okay, it's a standalone thriller. It's set in Sydney and it opens with budding journalist Geneva Layton receiving a phone call that changes the entire course of her life. Her terrified sister is on the line. She's trapped in the boot of a moving car, absolutely no idea who her abductor is, and she's begging Geneva for help. Then the line drops out. While the Police search for Amber. Geneva is absolutely filled with guilt. She believes that it's her fault that her sister was kidnapped and her days start to revolve around taking care of her very young niece and nephew and the days turn into months, turn into years. So when shocking new evidence emerges, Geneva becomes desperate for answers. Um, But to find them, she has to take on the political power of her brother-in-law's family the muscle of a motorcycle gang and the questionable support of a policeman who betrayed her in the first month of the investigation. And the closer she moves to the truth, the more danger she's in.
0: I loved Geneva. I thought she was an incredible character, so nuanced. Geneva, or Jen, as she's referred to more often than not in the story, I mean, what a multifaceted woman she is. She's loyal, she's selfless, she's incredibly brave, and yet she has a bit of a reckless, stubborn streak about it, doesn't she?
1: She does, and she's impulsive. She was so much fun to write. (laughs) Um, I loved writing Geneva because she's, like all of us, full of contradictions. And she does. She loves deeply and passionately and would do anything for those that she loves. But it was interesting to explore a different kind like that. She's there, the the kids aren't. And and just exploring that was interesting because I've got, you know, I've got nieces and I adore them and I would do anything for them. So it's just it was interesting to go down that that kind of path of family. And then because Geneva is so strong and gutsy and brave. It was a really wonderful opportunity to explore a power imbalance in a family. So she becomes uh, the kids, Lily and Charlie's primary carer, but she has to negotiate her way through their father, Hugh's gaslighting and control. She's at constant risk of losing access to the children. Hugh comes from a wealthy family. He's got lots of privilege and power and he's their, the, both Lily and Charlie's primary guardian because he's their father, and he holds all the legal and financial control over the children. So, And that that's something that happens in a number of families between parents. There's a power imbalance, and it can get abused. And having Geneva in every other aspect be a strong action-oriented character, but in this circumstance where she was kind of so trapped it allowed me to really explore and highlight that issue of power imbalance and and gaslighting and those various things and i hope by doing it the way that i did that it that it will challenge any prejudices people might have about others in a situation like that Um, particularly women it's so easy to say you know just leave get out and particularly because I placed an aunt in that situation you know you're not their mother get out you know but she's left one she adores them and, and she has raised them from very little but but two if she leaves those kids are left in the primary care of a man who is unraveling a man who is has started to drink heavily again and she but she can't go up against him if she goes to the court she's been told she will lose custody and not only will she will not custody but she will lose access she won't even get to see them she has no legal recourse so that was one of the aspects I, I enjoyed well not enjoyed but I wanted to explore with Geneva that she is this strong brave powerful woman but she's also she's under control she's very her, vulnerable isn't she very vulnerable and so are those children yeah and that We all have those contradictions, I guess, in our lives and in our personalities.
0: Absolutely. That was something that I really wanted to chat with you about because I, reading that, I thought it really does take a rare person indeed to put their entire life on hold to look after someone else's kids, even when they're related to you. And Jen looks after Amber's kids like they're her own, yet without any, as you say, of the legal protections a parent enjoys in relation to their own children, it made her so vulnerable made her subject to their father's control and I thought that was just such an interesting way of exploring that power imbalance and that issue
1: yeah and look I I think the thing because that makes Geneva sound like a saint <laughs> and while she's an amazing woman she is also operating from a place of great guilt and shame yeah and that can drive decisions. I was interested in that too, of, of like how that drives someone's decisions. I did a lot of research into the psychology of shame. and She is amazing, but she's also being driven by another force that she believes that it's her fault, that she is the reason the kids don't have their mother.
0: Yeah, yeah. and I think their father uses that to his advantage as well.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs>
0: yes. Uh, now, in her quest to uncover the truth behind her sister's disappearance all those years earlier, Geneva really does put herself in some sticky situations. Did you ever think, Ray, no, I can't go there? Like, Or were you more about what can I do to push Geneva's buttons or make my readers cover their eyes? Because I was a bit like that. I was like, oh, no, don't go there. Don't do that.
1: <laughs> I think because she has that inquisitive background she's trained to be a journalist she's gone to university and then she's in a cadetship when all this happens so I think she has that wanting to go out and find out what's happened but obviously the the moment that her sister goes missing the cadetship goes out the window and she is very much focused on her niece and nephew but I think she's so that that inquisitiveness drives her desire to find out the truth and then she starts to feel like she is the only person trying to get to the bottom of what happened to her sister and I think that can be a driving force in some questionable decisions and she is impulsive and she is at her heart she's an adventurer and she is so yeah but as a writer it's all about making it worse putting her in a corner can I get her out of that corner will that work and and I think when you put a character under fire, that's when you really find out who they are, just like in life, someone that's put under, you know, intense pressure, you find out who they really are. Um, And that's something I love about crime, because it's the perfect place to do that to someone to find out what makes people tick and, and how they, you know, why
0: they make the decisions that they do. At the heart of this story, I think, is a very clear sense of grief for the wife, the mother, and the sister who went missing, Amber Forsyth, um, and particularly the way each of her family members deal with their grief, especially not knowing what happened to her. I wondered, Ray, how you got into that headspace.
1: I did a lot of, again, it comes back to reading, and I, I watched every interview I could get my hands on with with people who had missing. Relatives talking about the impact on them and the grief and the just how it it threaded through their in every aspect of their world. There was a I'm not going to be able to remember the name of the show. There was an amazing series on SBS or ABC, but it was about missing people and it it really drove home for me the impact on on and and the different impacts on how different people react. So some people kind of have to almost put their hand up and and behave like it didn't happen. Others change their entire life. Others search for a way to belong in a different way. That really helped and then I did a lot of reading about it and just trying to put yourself, not myself because that's, that's not right, but maybe my acting background came into it of really trying to have empathy, get into that that skin of somebody that had those the impacts and, and that each person's reaction is different, as is always the way in trauma or anything. You know, some people run away, some people fight, some people freeze, some people take full control and, are, and then fall apart afterwards. There's, there's all sorts of things that happens in situations. So I wanted to explore that. Like that was what might be an initial... Interest in the story idea was the impact. So the impact on Hugh, the impact on um, Lily, the, the the daughter, and Charlie, and and you know for Charlie he was four months old. He was a baby. He didn't really know another mother, whereas Lily did. Yeah, and then obviously on Geneva, but even on the police investigating, and essentially yeah at the beginning not getting anywhere in that, those initial stages of the investigation. And I'm not—it's not a spoiler because it, it, it's in the very first chapter. But the police are actually there when that phone call comes in from Amber when she's in the boot of a moving car. So they are well and truly thrown into that feeling of powerlessness, I guess, that happened at the beginning of the novel.
0: Yeah, indeed. Now, if we haven't explicitly mentioned it before, Jen is a motorbike enthusiast. She rides them, she restores them, and generally has a keen interest in motorbikes, yep. a legacy from her late father. Now, you told us that you and your husband ride, but is this a characteristic you share with Geneva? Well, I don't
1: actually ride a bike, but I learnt, like, as my husband was learning to ride a bike, I just kind of took it all in and... and <laughs> Watched again, watched a million videos on on how you change the oil on a bike, and it comes back to I love learning. I love that part of the research, and I wanted to really understand where why people got into that lifestyle. I have to say, I love being on the back of the bike. I don't think there's anywhere else I can think quite as clearly. Like I've solved so many story problems on the back of the bike because I don't have to do anything i've got it being on the back of a bike this all your senses come alive so you go down a gully and there's a suddenly it gets too you know a degree or two colder or the smell you'll go past a farm and suddenly you know you can tell they've mown the grass or everything is more immediate and you're you're surrounded much more because it's all around you you know you haven't got you know in a box of the car and your vulnerability is also there because on a bike you, you're more vulnerable um, to other people and their driving and stuff. So, yeah, look, I did it in the same in the good mother. She was a runner. I'm not a runner. So I did a lot of talking with people that were runners and trying to understand what it was, what they got out of that. And it was the same with the motorbike
0: with Geneva. Yeah, so well done because I was there on the bike with her. I had greasy hands just like she had greasy hands and she- <laughs> kind of change the oil or fix the clutch or whatever it was that she was doing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So just, yeah, just wonderful um ray i think it's fair to say that many writers are inspired by your journey to publication myself included your talent your tenacity and perseverance got you to where you are today experienced not only as a traditionally published author but an indie author with two books now on the shelves and hopefully more in the pipeline so i wondered if there was one piece of advice that you would offer to aspiring authors out there what would it be be brave
1: it's hard. It's hard to do. It's hard to just keep moving forward, keep taking the risks, both in your writing and in reshaping your manuscript, reworking. Um, sometimes that being brave is setting aside a manuscript and moving on to a new one. It sounds kind of twee and I don't mean it to, but it really does. It takes bravery. It takes bravery to go along to a writing course, to, to ask someone to mentor you, to keep on going, keep on trying, but also keep on working. You have to work hard and you have to respect all the people, treat the people around you that you come into contact with with a lot of respect. I know that's more than one piece of advice, but it really matters, I think, how you treat other people um, within the industry as well. The Australian writing industry is incredible. They are so generous and kind and supportive, and I feel very honoured to have been welcomed in by all of you. And and I'm very grateful for that. So you have to value it as well and treat people with respect.
0: Is there something that you know about yourself as a writer now that you didn't know before you were published? I think that I can put a story together. I, I grew up in a very different
1: area to where I live now. Um, and I was never the star of English. I was never the star of that kind of side of the world. I always felt like I was the kid from the wrong side of the tracks. So I was at a a very fairly, it was a public school, but a fairly wealthy public school. And I came from housing commission kind of area. So I didn't really believe that I had value to put on the page, if that makes sense, and that you you can learn those skills. And yeah, but I did, I guess.
0: (laughs) You absolutely did. (laughs) That's wonderful. Thank you. Perhaps I should have asked this earlier, but in publishing your two books, you have joined a growing movement of Australian women writing in the crime space. It's actually astounding how many incredible novels are being written in this genre and the Australian appetite for such stories doesn't seem to be waning. So I wanted to ask you, was it always your intention to write crime? No, my intention was to tell a story. It just seems to be
1: where my brain goes. (laughs) Um, Look, and like I said before, it is an incredible way to put a character in a pressure cooker. So it's a way to explore themes and and current affairs and like I've said you know all different issues power imbalances but if you put them in a crime situation you can really do that and then for me it, it allows me to explore family under that kind of guys yeah so crime is an amazing place to do that but it is where my brain goes I I yeah, sorry about that.
0: <laughs> Just goes dark. Yeah, <laughs> all the better for us, crime fans. Yeah. <laughs> honestly, <laughs> have you ever considered writing in another genre?
1: Um, I think when I very, very, very first toyed with the idea of oh, I might try writing something. It was going to be set in Wales because I have you know family history back in Wales, and it was going to be you know a historical, I don't know something, but it didn't. Yeah, it was never going to happen. <laughs> So what's next, Ray? Ah, uh, so I'm writing another standalone. It's a thriller. It's kind of a cross between Jodie Peckolt's Nineteen Minutes and the movie The Fugitive. So with a female as the the hero. I can't I can't say too much more about it because <laughs> I'm still in the process of learning the story myself. But yeah, it's about a, a, the relationship between a mother and a son that's kind of gone they've separated and the, the impact of that on the two of them. So she ends up suspected of a, of a murder, the, the police tracking her down while she's trying to track down her son who she believes is about to commit an act that, that she, she needs to stop him from doing. Yeah.
0: Mm. Okay, sounds amazing already. <laughs> <laughs> Ray, if listeners wanted to learn more about you and your books, how can they do that? You can go to my
1: website, it's raycans.com. Um, I'm also on social media, mostly Instagram, Raycans Writes, and then I'm also on Facebook as well, which is also
0: raycanswrites. Writes. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. Ray, I so thoroughly enjoyed reading Dying to Know and I can't wait to see what you do next. Congratulations once again, my friend, and thank you for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. Thank you so much for having me. I just I love your your podcast. So it's a real honor to be here. That's a wrap folks. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please drop me a line via my webpage at claudientinellis.com via Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.